Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Tracy Ray from the employment law firm of Baron Lehman. Tracy says that OPB sponsorship is a great way to support the community and connect with Baron Liebman's clients. This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. We start today with the first-of-its-kind effort focused on the unique dangers posed by the Cascadia subduction zone. It has three big goals to enable better collaboration among earthquake scientists, to diversify that scientific workforce, and to help Northwest communities prepare for the big one. It's called the Cascadia Region Earthquake Science Center, or Crescent, and it's a new federally funded scientific collaborative led by the University of Oregon. Diego Melgar is an associate professor of earth sciences at the university and a director of the center, and he joins us now. It's great to have you on Think Out Loud. Hi, great to be here, Dave. How did this collaboration come together? Well, um, through a realization mostly by uh, earth scientists and earthquake scientists here in the region that um, there were many of us and that the problems here uh, looming for earthquakes are large and that we really needed to get organized. Hmm. You put out a kind of celebratory tweet two weeks ago to say that this new program was funded. Had there been a question about that? Yes. So every single um, federally uh, funded program is competitive uh, through a grants process. And uh, we don't know who else submitted a grant necessarily. But yeah, it wasn't uh, a sure thing. Hmm. Your team has talked about creating an earthquake culture. What does that mean? Yeah, so when we talk about our earthquake culture, really what we mean is how we conceive of our relationship with earthquakes, right? We can't avoid them. We have to learn to live with them. And the way we conceptualize that relationship here in the Pacific Northwest is maybe a little bit different than down in California, where they have much more frequent earthquakes. And frankly, they're probably better prepared. So we're hoping to contribute the sort of scientific foundation to that earthquake culture. Well, that's, I mean, the, the the question of frequency is such an important one. How do you create a, a culture of earthquake awareness that leading to readiness on the individual level when there are not frequent moderate earthquakes, but instead enormous ones every, say, 300 years or so? It's challenging for sure, Dave. You've, you've put your finger on the main problem or the main difference between us and, and California, right? California also has big earthquakes, has more frequent earthquakes, but we have way bigger ones. And they're also more infrequent. So yes, it's a problem. Um, we hope to do so partly by um, being in people's uh, minds, being present uh, in communities, and also by engaging a new generation of earth scientists. There's so much to do while we wait around for the next big one. Um, Earth science research is really an exciting thing. And so partly we hope to uh, get that new generation of of undergraduate students interested in this field and engaged and excited. And then they can too contribute to creating that earthquake culture. Hmm. Well, you're touching on what I I think um, would fall into the category of of diversifying the the geoscience workforce, which I noted briefly in my intro, is one of the goals of this collaborative. How do you plan to do that? 
Yes, we that is one of our uh, main objectives in addition to the scientific aspect and to the community collaborations aspect. Uh, we have very targeted activities aimed at getting folks from minoritized backgrounds, uh, for example, from tribal high schools into uh, careers in geosciences and also uh, being very deliberate about making sure that we facilitate access for undergraduates, also from minoritized backgrounds into these exciting careers. I'm a little ashamed to say that um, the earth sciences have a really terrible track record with this. In all the physical sciences, the statistics don't lie and point to the fact that we are the least diverse field. So any um, progress Wait, I just, we I can make on I this. I want to make yeah. sure I understand. So out yeah. of all of the physical sciences, earth, um, earth sciences are the least diverse? That is correct. That is well studied by the American Geosciences Institute and by other um, organizations. Uh, we're worse than physics, computer science, math, engineering, um, and so on. Yeah, it's it's a pressing challenge, Dave, because the earthquakes are affecting communities that are, by their very definition, diverse. But the researchers that are carrying out that work are not necessarily so. So that's a, a real challenge that we're hoping to address. So often, in order to um, address a challenge, you have to diagnose it. Do you have a sense for why that is? Um, that's that's a com complex answer. Um, partly in the earth sciences, it's because we're not always on the top of people's minds. Um, thinking at the high school level, for example, um, we're not present in that curriculum necessarily. So students frequently find us late in their academic careers. They start in physics or chemistry or biology somewhere else. And only through an accidental contact with a geology class, for example, do they realize that those things that get them excited exist in the earth sciences and that they can have a real impact, for example, by contributing to research on hazards, which research has also shown that students are really motivated by altruism, by wanting to help others. So that's part of the problem for us in earth sciences is it takes a long while for people to figure out that this is a fruitful career path. I want to go back to some of the, the basic science here. It's actually been a little while since we've talked on this show about the Cascadia subduction zone event, the, the big one. Can you first just remind us of, of the timing here, the historical cycle for the, the really big earthquakes connected to the, the one plate going under the other and also where we are now in the current timeline? Yes. So we think that on average, big earthquakes happen here in what we call the Cascada subduction zone, which, as you know, spans from Northern California through Oregon, Washington, and into British Columbia, roughly every three to 500 years. And the reason we know that is itself very beautiful, and perhaps we can talk about it some, some other time. Um, but we know that the last one happened on January 26th of the year 1700. So that places us 323 years uh, since the last one, which is why, you know, sometimes people say that um, we're due. The reality of it is that we don't know. It could be many decades before the next big one, but the fact that it's been 323 years definitely should um, make us work with a little bit more urgency than it otherwise would. Can you put into... Um into numbers, you know, percentage numbers, the likelihood of the big one happening in the next few decades. 
That's an extremely difficult question, and it's exactly the kind of science that we're hoping to address. Um, putting hard numbers like that in terms of likelihoods of uh, an earthquake happening in the next 10 years, 20 years, 50 or 100 years involves learning a lot of things that we don't yet necessarily know about the Cascadia subduction zone. So it's exactly the kind of research that the center will facilitate by bringing you know, 40, 50, 60 scientists together to work on that so that we can give um, our agencies, our community members more precise answers like that so that they know how to prepare. You noted that the word you use to describe um, how we know about this, the, uh, about the, the last time it happened, for example, and, and before that, it was beautiful. What do you mean? Well, earth science is beautiful. We're, we're frequently looking for clues in the landscape, um, evidence in the rocks, and knowing how to read that is a fundamental um, sense of awe for those of us that uh, get into the earth sciences. And so it's beautiful because the, the landscape and the earth record history much the way that a person would by painting or, or writing it down. You just have to learn how to read that that writing or, or see that painting. And, and once you do, all of a sudden all these things glare out at you and you're right there thinking, my God, something really big has happened here. Then, of course, we use really nice and awesome science like carbon-14 dating and things like that to figure out when things happened. And we can turn that painting into also a very precise history of what has happened in the past. If you're just tuning in, we're talking right now about the new scientific collaborative headed by researchers at the University of Oregon. They're focused on earthquake hazards from the Cascadia subduction zone. We're talking with Diego Melgar, who is one of the leaders of this new collaborative. He is an associate professor of earth sciences at the U of O. How would you assess our region-wide readiness right now? I mean, I guess the, the most basic question is what would happen if the big one were to hit today? Well, we're, we're better off than we used to be, but we're nowhere near where we need to be, is how I would characterize it. And that's not because we're not working. Everybody knows that this is a pressing issue, and uh, things are happening all the time at all levels to try to improve our, our earthquake preparedness. But I, I want your listeners to remember that we didn't really um, realize how big of a problem this was until probably around the mid-90s, as when, when people's consciousness, uh, when this really took hold in people's consciousness. So we haven't been working on it for, for that long compared to, for example, California, where for the last 150 years they've been, you know, um, preparing their building codes and, and so on. So we're still vulnerable, for sure. There's going to be strong shaking. There might be um, big tsunamis at the coast. And we're not necessarily ready enough in terms of our preparation um, for this. We, we've talked for years about the enormous number of roads and bridges and schools and libraries and firehouses and hospitals and, and fossil fuel infrastructure and on and on that are likely to fall or to fail in the big one. And the sense I've gotten in, in all those conversations is that the big challenge isn't a, a lack of scientific knowledge. It's a lack of the hundreds of billions of dollars or more that it would cost to, to retrofit all of that infrastructure to, to you know, reinforce unreinforced masonry just for, for one, you know, one particular kind of building example. I'm wondering if, if you think I've gotten that wrong. 
No, I don't think you've gotten that wrong. I mean, I th- I think the the science still needs to advance further, and we can talk about that. And that's why we're here um, as a center. Uh, for example, when when we do get around to retrofitting and to rebuilding our bridges, engineers need to know what kind of shaking to build the bridge for. How long is it going to shake, and how hard? And right now, those answers are still uncertain, but they're the kind of answers that that we could provide. But you're absolutely right that the science can be the foundation for how decisions are made. But the decisions still lie in the public, politic, and economic sphere as well. So we also need a lot of advance in in that regard, and that's also part of our earthquake culture. Do we have um, the the motivation to actually get these kinds of things done and and do that kind of hard work? You know, you were starting to talk about this when you mentioned the building codes and and what kind of shaking engineers need to be thinking about. But it makes me wonder what what you see as the most urgent scientific questions that the aspects of the Cascadia subduction zone that that we actually don't fully understand right now. What to you are the most urgent questions? There's there's a few, but I'll tell you about one that for me personally, as, as a researcher, no longer as a director or anything, that I'm really interested in. And it has to do with where is the fault really stuck? We would call that locking or coupling. And that's a really cool question because it requires that we go and measure things offshore, that we um, deploy sensors on the seafloor to measure what the fault is doing and so on. And it's a really interesting and technically difficult question, but it's also really important because depending on where it's coupled or where it's locked, the tsunamis can look really different. So knowing that can be the difference between a five-foot tsunami and a 30-foot tsunami. So it seems like something really important that we ought to figure out quite quickly. So so that's one example of uh, the kinds of things that the center can facilitate. Is, uh, is the location of where the, the plates are most stuck, is that the the same thing as where the epicenter of the eventual quake is going to be or or are those not coupled in that way you're you're exactly getting to the kinds of things dave that we are very interested in just because the plate is really locked there we still don't necessarily know whether that foretells that that's where the next big earthquake is going to happen or where it's going to start. But that's also the kind of thing we're interested in tackling. We're using a lot of advanced computational modeling, machine learning and AI and these kinds of things to run as many models and as advanced as we can to glean some wisdom um, about problems like that. This is something else that was noted in the press release. I mean, what role are advanced computing models going to play in your work? They're absolutely fundamental. Large earthquakes everywhere in the world are, thankfully, very infrequent, but that makes them really hard to study, right? Because there haven't been that many since we have had really advanced instrumentation. So we rely on computer simulation extensively to try to understand what is possible um, to happen during these really, really big events. Hmm. What's the plan for how to actually share what you'll be learning with policymakers or with the general public? I mean, this gets back to the culture question we were talking about earlier. How do you make it so that the knowledge gets to people who can actually do something with it? 
I'm I'm really glad you you asked that question. I'm I'm very loath of the sort of scientist in the ivory tower type of model where you know wisdom is raining down from up there. Um, the way we've built Crescent is to have state agencies, community interests, and things like that involved from day one. So all our science meetings involve our state geological surveys, FEMA, the U.S. Geological Survey, and so on, and these agencies that need to take the science and put it to to good use. So we're hoping to build a model of collaboration that is more horizontal than than what has happened in the past, where we're constantly talking to our community members. And also they get to tell us, hey, this is the science that would be most useful to me. And then the center can kind of adapt and say, okay, maybe we should focus on that particular scientific question that is really of interest to our coastal communities, for example. So we're hoping to establish that kind of two-directional communication. How do you think that the the necessary focus on climate change with a kind of crescendo in recent years, and, and I include, you know, um, media in, in this as well, um, h- how do you think that has affected the extent to which the general public thinks about uh, and I guess prepares for this earthquake? That's a, that's a difficult question. I, I'm not sure that I see necessarily a connection between how folks perceive um, climate change and the urgency and uh, you know hazards that are all around us as a result of climate change and this earthquake. Um, what I can tell you is that I do see a lot of um, doom and gloom kinds of feelings amongst people when we think about you know wildfires and landslides and so on, and and earthquakes are no different, but. What I want to communicate to people is that even if we have those um, really scary feelings, this kind of center is really important because it will let us know more. And the more we know, then the better we can prepare. And then hopelessness is a little bit harder and maybe we feel more empowered. Diego Melgar, thanks very much for joining us. Of course. Pleasure to be here, Dave. Diego Melgar is an associate professor of earth sciences at the University of Oregon and and one of the directors of this new center, which is a a collaborative with universities, other ones on the West Coast, and actually further away to focus on research and action when it comes to the Cascadia subduction zone earthquake.